Greetings, Ray's community, and welcome to today's episode. I'm excited to host Kristen Sorensen, who serves as Vice President of Development at the West Point Association of Graduates. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you, Brent. It's really, it's great to be with you. Well, it has been a while since we've properly caught up, so we were excited to have uh, this catalyst to do so. And I want to uh, start this episode, as I have with many recent episodes, by asking Kristen, more about her own uh, career path and higher education journey in particular. So tell me, uh, Kristen, about uh, who you were junior year of high school. What was that Kristen into? Where was she and what led her to Kenyan College to study a bunch of languages? That's that's uh, let's see, that could be a very complex question, but um, I'll try to simplify. So. Junior in high school, um, I actually was really interested in studying comparative religion. I went to a school outside of Boston um, where the headmaster was a reverend and he taught a number of courses on comparative religion that were just mind blowing. And I asked which, which school? Noble and Greeno, Noble, okay. Nobles. It's in Dedham, Massachusetts. Oh, very well. Uh, lots well. of friends there, including uh, uh, George Malley. I don't know if you've met George. Oh. But... Yeah, I do. I do know who George is. Yeah. Um, in any event, he was just a complete inspiration. And, you know, at a, a time in my life where, and I think not unlike most people kind of struggling with or struggling, grappling with who I was and who I wanted to be. Uh, just studying the human condition was something that was really meaningful to me. And when I looked to colleges, actually, Kenyon jumped out, Kenyon College in Ohio, Gambier, Ohio, as a place that uh, would be really interesting next step, given the fact that they had an incredible English department, but also a really amazing comparative religion department. Um, so with that in mind, and again, just kind of exploring what is it to be human? What are the big questions? How does one make sense of those? And how do you uh, make meaning in your life? Um, as an adult, I ended up at Kenyon. And uh, I think Chris, I just have to say, those are some deep thoughts for a 16 year old. Uh, and so that is really a testament to that experience at Nobles. He, well, again, his name was uh, Ted Gleason, Reverend Ted Gleason, and he was really remarkable. And I think many of us at Nobles were really impacted by him um, in ways that were very profound. But in any event, uh, after I graduated from Kenyon, I went back to see him. He was a mentor. And I said, uh, you know, Mr. Gleason, what or what do I do with this comparative religion major? Uh, what what do you think might make sense for me? And he said, you know, Kristen, fundraising is really something that you should look at. And I I was gobsmacked. I had not ever considered fundraising and actually promptly did everything but that. So for about uh, five years or six years, I explored a whole host of things, including working for Christie's, the auction gallery in New York, um, for a couple of years in contemporary and modern paintings, impressionist paintings. Um, I worked in the collectibles department, all very heady stuff. Um, and 
started to feel at some point that I, you know, was longing for something a little bit more meaningful. I had a brief stint work, working for a foundation um, called the Simon Bolivar Foundation, which was looking to help uh, emerging rural populations in Latin America elevate their, their community building skills. And I did spend a little time working as the executive director there, again, trying to look for something purposeful. That strangely led into working in retail in Spain. Um, so I spent a couple of years doing that. And that led to management consulting. Uh, so uh, I ended up working. For Not, nothing that you've shared so far would have <laughs> made me think. And that led to management consulting. So that's a little bit of a curveball. How, how did that happen? Yeah. Not not just management consulting, but with BCG, which is one of the elite firms, um, hard job to get. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I was the client in Spain. So I worked for a big department store chain called Galerias Preciados. And uh, I was uh, on the end of implementation of a BC, BCG strategy. So there was a BCG team at Galerias Preciados at the time. And I was on, as I said, implementation side in visual merchandising. So I was in charge of a, a team of Spaniards and we uh, went across the country implementing this much more integrated kind of lifestyle marketing strategy that BCG had come up with. So when that project ended, BCG offered me a position in Boston and I actually joined their retail group and moved back to Boston and then ended up in LA with them. And um, finally actually found myself um, being approached to work for um, a big uh, project that they had won working with, I believe it was Nissan. And my job was going to be to travel around Texas to different car dealerships and figure out how to do just just in time delivery of cars of particular colors and models. And I literally went back to my desk and just said, I have wandered way too far from what matters to me. And I actually shortly thereafter quit and moved back to the Boston area where I'm from and uh, and started looking around and by that time was willing to explore what my mentor had offered me all along and uh, actually ended up networking my way into uh, a conversation with Harvard and uh, and ultimately had my first job in fundraising with the principal gifts department at Harvard in the central development office. So that's that, um, that's the journey. <laughs> I mean, I've done 150 few of these uh, episodes and that journey definitely stands out. Uh, what was it like when you think about the first week, first month on the job at Harvard? What are you actually given? Uh, wh what material did you have to work with? How much of it was go jump in the deep end versus in-depth training? Just take me back to really that that onboarding process that that's a great question um so this was you know roughly 30 years ago so fundraising was different and and fundraising is actually quite different at places like harvard um princeton yale i think um but certainly at the time uh i think what harvard's always excelled at is relationship building and 
what we were doing at the time was definitely person specific. It was, uh, we had a, a pool of, I guess, roughly, I'm going to say 250, 300 people who had a net worth of over $5 million. And our job was to, I worked for another mentor of mine, uh, Bill Boardman, who was the head of principal giving. Um, and with a whole host of really incredible people at Harvard at the time, Tom Reardon, his brother Jack, um, Bill Boardman, and his his brother, um, who was in the annual giving side. Um, but Bill was my boss. And again, we were starting something new. The whole notion of principal giving was not something that the field had thought about before. And uh, we're charged with thinking about Harvard University as a whole and these high net worth individuals as uh, assets for the, the institution as a whole. Um, and our job was to build, help the president of Harvard, who at the time was Neil Rudenstein, build personal relationships with as many of these people as possible and represent the interests of often multiple schools to these individuals so that they weren't being bombarded by lots of people from different directions, that it was a centralized ask and um, that it was coming from the, the head of the institution. So in the first, in the first, uh, I'd say first six months, there wasn't a whole lot of training per se. Um, as I think of that today and the onboarding process that I've gone through or have made sure that my team goes through as they onboard here at West Point and in other institutions, it was really a lot about, um, I guess, uh, apprenticing myself really to, to Bill. And uh, so can, I, can I just ask, like, I think there was definitely a period and, and maybe even to this moment where kind of like all roads led to Bill or all roads led to oh, Jack yeah. in Boston uh, development. And I was about a year into trying to start Evertrue. And one of my mentors had attended the Middlesex school and he kind of helped connect me with the, the independent school league. And I got connected with the folks at Nobles and, and, and beyond yeah. um, early as we were getting started. And then we had lunch one day with Bill Boardman at the Somerset Club on, on Beacon Hill. And, I know it well, yeah. And it was, his farewell dinner from Harvard was at the Somerset. And and so uh, I, I think he was retired from Harvard at that time, but was still just heavily involved um, throughout the community. And whenever his name comes up, I mean, people are just so kind of like the amount of reverence and respect is just remarkable. Why is that? Like, what what did Bill Boardman do? Oh my goodness! Yeah. Why? Like, why? Why is he one of the names that is just synonymous with philanthropy? In yeah, at least. Well, um, he's just a really lovely human being. Full stop. I I think that that's really. The secret sauce is just that he was somebody who was genuine. I remember him, uh, you know, talking to me about how fortunate he felt to be in the in the field, and just what a what a um, privilege it was to get to know the people that were associated with Harvard, and um, that he felt like his work was just. A real gift, and he never he never lost sight of that. It was never transactional, 
And, and that's, that's, I think, one of the things that I really took away from, uh, from my years, I was at Harvard for almost eight years, at Harvard was, again, this really a genuine approach to working with people to try to connect them to something meaningful that was, that they could facilitate at Harvard, as opposed to kind of by the numbers trying to put people through a whole system and and pop them out the other side as donors it was it was very much about an individual approach a really authentic relationship that you would build over time with with donors um, that it was a privilege to represent an institution like Harvard and that again you know Bill always would talk about being a facilitator that it's really not about me it's you know it's not about me Bill Boardman being um, in in this role and that when people give, it's because of me, it's that I'm here to offer this opportunity to make a difference to people that are well-intended and, and want to make an impact. And that I have the privilege of connecting them to an institution where that can happen. And so again, this, for me, again, somebody who was really looking for some mission-driven, purposeful way to make a living, um, and, and something that could align with kind of my, my personal values. Um, his philosophy really spoke to me and I've, I've kept that as a guiding principle really with, within all the teams that I've worked for. And it's the, it's the way that I approach um, fundraising is that I feel like, again, it's not, um, it's ultimately about how authentic you can be in your um, belief in the place that you're working and your ability to express um, a real passion for it. And hopefully again, find people that are like-minded, um, but that ultimately, you know, ultimately it's an opportunity that you're presenting and, you know, people are going to say yes or no. And right. that's okay. That's, that's completely okay. I, I think that was, that was something, that whole philosophy is something that I really took from Bill. And I think that made him very special. So as you reflect on the yeses or the noes during that time at Harvard in particular, is there one yes or one no that stands out as being a really uh, teachable moment or lesson that is stuck? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, there were, I mean, honestly, I worked with so many different um, people and I- Or even any just trips. I guess, here, I, guess I can offer, you know, there were, there was, and I, I, I'd rather not use the name. Oh, please don't, but, yeah. Um, there was uh, a very, very wealthy person at the time who was huge on Wall Street making a lot of money and, uh, and, ultimately got in trouble for the way in which he was doing that. And he did come to Harvard um, to talk about a way in which he could align. At the time, it was the biggest campaign, you know, in the history of fundraising. It was a $2.1 billion campaign. I think it ended up at, what, $4 billion or something. But uh, it was, uh, you know, we we definitely needed large donors, and we were looking at the time um, Harvard had set up something called the Partners Program. So we were looking for non grads to come to Harvard and and invest in Harvard. There was a whole, Carrie Pelzel who ended up at Dartmouth um, was the head of it, and we were, you know, hopeful that we could kind of create this um, collection of really high high 
powered uh, people who were interested in, in topics um, that were possibly uh, manifest at Harvard, whether in public health or in business, and that we could pull them in kind of topically. Anyway, the, the uh, fellow that I'm talking about um, certainly had the capacity to make a transformational difference at Harvard. And there was discussion about what uh, to do, given the fact that at the time, again, the the uh, goal that we had was really aspirational for for Harvard, and it, and record breaking, you know, for the industry. And ultimately, you know, Harvard decided we decided as a development team that this person's reputation was just not in line with Harvard values, and that we did not want to see Harvard used as a institution to kind of cleanse somebody's reputation and that we um, were willing to walk away. And so we didn't pursue that opportunity where it could have been immensely impactful at the time. Um, and, you know, subsequently, um, I think that person may have ended up spending a little time in jail. Anyway, it was it was the right decision. And uh, and again, very much about protecting the reputation of, of the institution. You know, I think institutions sometimes make some mistakes and we know that Harvard made a few and, you know, that, that some uh, it's been in the news, you know, the kind of Jeffrey Epstein connection that was very unfortunate. But um, for the most part, I think, you know, Harvard asked all the right questions and did its due diligence. And I really respected that. And I, again, uh, all the institutions that I've worked at since then, I, I hold true to that. You know, we want to be careful about where the money's coming from and who it's coming from. And it's particularly true at, at, at West Point. We have to be really uh, do our due diligence on that front. Well, that's a great example and certainly uh, topical. And oftentimes we'll hear about examples where the donor said no to the institution. Uh, we don't talk as much about when the institutions say no to the donors, right? The the times that the institutions say yes to the donors that they shouldn't have, like those get the headlines, but there are more times than we realize where people are saying, no, we won't accept that gift. And, and I don't think we, obviously we can't really talk about those. Yeah. Um, and there were other times as well where, and, and I would say, you know, here at West Point, there are, there have been occasions where again, people come forward um, who also have had similarly difficult um, trajectories in terms of their reputation, where we've also said no. We've also said no when it's just not a program that's within the wheelhouse for for West Point and that we know that we can't execute on a donor's aspiration in terms of a, a program or a passion, a personal passion in a way that would make them happy. And so again, we will say no. Um, Tell yes, me. I mean, the, the, uh, again, my stories about working with people at Harvard, I mean, over and over and over again, and I would say just in my career, at, you know, at MoMA, at the New School, at West Point, I'm just endlessly, am just, I, I do feel just the same way that, you know, Bill kind of helped condition me. Um, I just feel like I'm so lucky to have a, a place at the table to be able to interact with people who have the capacity to make a difference and, and to create that intersection. And, and again, I, I think about development 
and that, you know, advancement as a partnership and that I'm able to facilitate that is just, it's a privilege. Tell me about MoMA and most of your career within development has been centered in higher education. What is one thing that is similar about fundraising at MoMA and what is one thing that is drastically different than the higher education world? Um, well, again, museums are teaching institutions fundamentally, but you don't have, again, the alumni base. You, you need to um, cultivate a group of people who are going to support the institution. And I, I guess, you know, you have it, obviously uh, museums are membership driven um, and that's kind of the broad base is the membership. But at the, at the highest levels, you know, it's a, um, in some ways it's a more limited group that you have to choose from people who are interested in collecting, who have the capacity to collect at the highest levels, who are able to invest in these museums at the highest levels. And uh, it does really rely, not unlike most not-for-profits, but on a, a, a smaller group of, I would say, more elite um, individuals who, um, who are you know, willing and able to provide this incredible opportunity for the public to, you know, learn about art and, and um, build those museums. I, I have, um, I really missed in that context, although there was public pro programming and an educational component, I did miss the students. I missed this idea that I was helping the next generation in a really tangible way, a way that, you know, I had an opportunity to interact with the students. I could see the impact right away. I could uh, watch a student over a four-year period develop and see how the, the philanthropy was really making a difference to that individual. And in that regard, um, I guess, you know, that was the difference. Um, all, all of the individuals attached to these not-for-profits are remarkable, you know, in that they're, as donors, you know, that they're uh, making something pretty magnificent happen. But I, I did like that whole educational process. And my father was a, a college president. He was the head of Babson College. So I grew up in an in a academic institution. Um, my father was also a Harvard Business School professor. So I had been around academia, you know, for a lot of my life, I just felt more comfortable. I, I just understood it better um, and felt like I could really align with every aspect of what the educational uh, world was offering to the to the students. Well, I'm glad you shared that part of the story. I mean, that, that makes me feel like uh, even prior to junior year of high school, you had plenty of exposure to the world of alumni and development. Uh, Indeed, my parents entertained quite a lot at, at our house. Um, and they were, again, uh, my father was pretty catalytic early on in helping Babson find its niche as an entrepreneurial school. And, uh, you know, there was a fair amount of fundraising involved in that. And so uh, while I was not, you know, I didn't, I wasn't um, overtly 
training at his knee, but I, I definitely watched how, how that worked. And he was, he was really good at it too, but not again in a transactional way. It was always because he was just so passionate about what he was doing. And he was so engaged with um, bringing people into the, into the endeavor. And, and again, I had so much respect for him still, still do um, for what he was able to create there. Very cool. Uh, tell me about the time at the new school, which is sort of the intersection of art and education uh, to a certain extent. In, indeed, that's that's a really good observation. Um, as you know, the new school has a number of conservatories. It has Parsons School of Design. Um, it is, you know, a very unique institution in New York. I think uniquely New York institution. So again, that kind of artistic bent, but also the so, social sciences um, in terms of academia and sort of um, very progressive in its in its uh, perspective on on education. Um, well, that you know that experience was really remarkable as well. Um, I worked with Bob Carey, who was the former senator from Nebraska, who was the president at the time. He did not have a lot of experience in higher education and um, was pretty ambitious for the school. Definitely marching to a different drummer. Um, extremely charismatic, uh, and again, created a lot of sizzle around the school and kind of energized um, a generation uh, of people who had been longstanding supporters of, of the institution. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the history, but the new school started as a continuing ed school, um, kind of an experiment in uh, adult education. I don't think they, they uh, saw it that way, but um, it was an outgrowth and kind of a political protest um, that a number of Columbia professors uh, made uh, during wartime where they felt that they should be able to speak out against the uh, the war effort. And when they were silenced at Columbia, they decided to split off and start a new school. So um, that was the history. And then it really got some momentum around um, World War II when a number of uh, Jewish intellectuals and intellectuals across Europe were being uh, discriminated against and their lives were be being threatened. And the New School really bravely reached out and accepted, I think there were 60 um, faculty members that they brought on from Europe and they started the New School for Social Research. So they basically started with continuing ed and then a graduate school, really unusual. So without that college in the middle, you know, which ended up being Eugene Lang School. Um, uh, so, in any in any event, it was it was definitely, you know, some of the traditional methods that I learned, some of the um, the best practices. Uh, you had to kind of throw everything out the window and and figure out how to do good fundraising in a in an environment where um, you did not have this longstanding tradition of. Uh, giving back from the alumni, and you also had an alumni body that many, many of them were going into the arts or into theater, um, uh, into fashion, and were not necessarily uh, well healed in terms of their capacity to give back. So again, we had to come up with different uh, ways of approaching fundraising, and it, it really was more like, I'd say, um, a cultural institution in the sense a little bit more like an art institution where you're trying to create the constituency. Because we, while we 
we did finally build an alumni program there, um, we knew that that was going to be a long-term investment for that to pay off. So uh, yeah. again, it was it was a real um, exercise in, in being innovative, creative, and again, kind of iconoclastic. So right. we did end up raising a lot of money for a new building um, that is, is the university center uh, in downtown uh, Manhattan in, in the village. It's uh, quite iconic. Um, but, but to go from, and I was thinking about this before we started this conversation, but to go from a place where you're, you're trying to create culture, camaraderie, some sense of obligation and commitment to then the place that like maybe has that the most inherently ingrained in all of the world, that is quite a change. Like not a lot of people are going from the new school to West Point. <laughs> It's just, it's opposite ends of the spectrum. It, it is. And and also just in terms of, you know, kind of political perspective, that is, I'd say that West Point is certainly represents every perspective that you can imagine, but it is it does tend to be slightly more traditional and a little more conservative. Um, but, you know, both of the institutions are graduating people who are hoping to make a really important impact and to serve in some meaningful way in the world. So, um, and that I would say again, across higher education, that was the thing that I loved the most was that it was, you know, you're investing in this, in, in the next generation that will make, you know, kind of a, you know, you're, you, if you can do that, then just imagine all, all of the possibilities that come out of that. So, you know, while, um, West Point is all about service. You know, I also felt that the new school grads were profoundly committed to, you know, whether they were actors or musicians or um, fashion designers, they were profoundly committed to making a difference in their communities. That's, that's a beautiful way of putting it. And it sounds like even though maybe the missions and histories are radically different, uh, you genuinely believe deeply in both of them. Indeed, indeed, and and I think you can't you can't do this work authentically unless you really believe in in the missions. And I will say that um, I was recruited to the job at West Point um, twice. So I I was working at the new school. I was commuting into the city. I live in Garrison. New York, which is about an hour north on the train. And it was about a two hour door to door commute to get into Manhattan to, to the new school. Um, I had small kids and I was hoping that something would emerge that would allow me to be a little more um, present for my children. Um, and West Point did come around and, and knock and said, you know, you've got, you've got the fundraising skills and we're lo really looking to up our game. And uh, you've got, this is your professional background and we'd love to, to have you join us. And I will say the first time around, I, I, I did feel like it was a bridge too far after the number of interviews and I was driving off post and there was um, a cadre of, of cadets doing hand-to-hand -hand combat in uniform, you know, on, on the plane. And I just thought, I don't know. I don't know if I can really, if I can really identify with this. 
Um, and then they came back. And so I pulled myself out of that first search. And then a couple of years later, they came back and asked me to, to look at it again. And at that point, I realized that I was the one who was limiting my understanding of what West Point was because they understood who I was. They knew what my background was. They knew where I'd worked and really what my, um, you know, possible leanings might be. Um, but they respected my my skill set and they wanted to to bring that to to West Point and to try to professionalize their their fundraising operation. And at that point I I realized that you know I I needed to open up my horizon. And it's been an amazing experience just working with some extraordinary people. And um again, I have just deep respect for what West Point is trying to do with military leaders in terms of teaching critical thinking. It is a liberal arts institution. That's the thing that a lot of people don't know is that it is liberal arts. Um, and uh, there are core requirements that, in, that include studying English and poetry and Shakespeare, you know, um, as well as the history of warfare, etc. So, and obviously getting the, the military training um, that that uh, graduates have in order to go become second lieutenants in, in the army. Um, but there... I, I love that, that these people are being taught to think really critically and that ultimately what I've come to understand is that um, everybody is asked to bring their best game forward um, to bring whatever they're thinking to the commander and offer that as part of the, the problem solving. And ultimately, yes, the commander makes the decision, but it is a, a real process of collecting all the information and trying to come up with the best possible solution given the facts or given you know, people's perspectives. And that was something that I didn't expect, that it's not, it's not just rote learning. And when you think about some of the most poignant memories or experiences that you've been a part of since joining West Point, it's been a period of, uh, you know, tremendous change, certainly. I think you hinted at it earlier, maybe some of what it, it had in common with the new school was this uh, desire to really professionalize and elevate philanthropy, recognizing that even the funding model has maybe changed over over time. And so, uh, yeah, when you think about the work there, specific events or specific experiences where you've just really felt that just inspiration of the mission or that you've really felt like you're seeing philanthropy in action? Um, well, all the time, every day. I mean, what 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 we do at West Point, I mean, many people still, when I run into them and I say I'm the VP of development at West Point, they'll say West Point needs money uh, because it is uh, an institution that is primarily funded with appropriated dollars. Um, and those appropriated dollars are core and essential to uh, West Point being able to execute on its mission. So without those appropriated dollars, um, which come from taxpayers. So all of us are, are part of supporting West Point um, already uh, as taxpayers. Um, that education would exist without philanthropy, but it would not be the top tier 
educational experience that it is without donors. So we raise money for what we term the margin of excellence, which makes the difference between being a solid institution and being an excellent institution that you know, regularly produces um, MacArthur uh, scholars and Fulbright winners. And um, we do extremely well, uh, you know, in terms of being toe to toe with top tier institutions on that count with these uh, very competitive uh, graduate scholarships. Um, we have opportunities that really allow the cadets to develop as people, um, both inside and outside of the classroom, um, but also as leaders. Uh, and we enhance with our margin of excellence dollars the the uh, the facilities even at West Point. So there's often a public-private kind of combo going on where the appropriated dollars will be building the fundamental structure and will be ensuring that the, the facility ends up being competitive with facilities across the country at the best institutions. Tell me about the, the Frederick Malik West Point Visitor Center. I think that is an example, and I know that you personally... Yep. Uh, spent a lot of time making that happen. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks. I, you know, again, Fred Malik, amazing, amazing man. Um, really, just cannot say enough good things about him. Sadly, he is deceased. Um, but he and his wife Marlene Malik, who, by the way, is being honored uh, shortly at the Ford Theater in in Washington D.C. for her her work alongside Fred, but also on her own, in her own right, um, philanthropically. So really remarkable couple. But, um, you know, that was really, that was a really interesting journey with Fred. Um, he was the class of 1959. Um, he uh, had an incredible network of friends and acquaintances that he was willing to um, bring to West Point, um, introduce, them to the academy, help them fall in love again, and and with with the uh, non grad donors who we we have at West Point, it, it has been the case that it has to or has been aligned with a, a really passionate alum, and the friend the friendship between those individuals is what brings uh, those non grads into our into our family. Um, but he. Uh, Time and time again, uh, was would open open up his uh, Rolodex and uh, you know think about West Point as a place that completely transformed his life. His his father was a uh, he was uh, from Czechoslovakia and his father had been a beer truck driver, and Fred ended up through you know his own wiles and determination having a remarkable career. Um, and uh, again, was all about West Point. The visitor center was something that, you know, just was a wonderful evolution for him. So he, he was always interested in doing something for cadets. Um, he wanted to do something on uh, West Point, the post. Um, he's, he ended up touching a lot of different dimensions of, of West Point. Um, 
the number of athletic facilities. He was involved supporting the superintendent. Anyway, kind of a, a citizen of the academy with respect to his philanthropy. But when we were looking for funding for the biggest building ever that we built, which was the visitor center, which is outside of West Point's gates, and not an, not a uh, not an, a place that had been meaningful to him, um, he really hesitated, and he hesitated for a long time. Meanwhile, he was the chairman of our first campaign when I arrived here, which was called For Us All. And again, it was that process of educating Fred, you know, as we were educating others about the importance of the visitor center, the fact that a million people visited West Point um, through that portal, that um, it was critical and essential to the civilian and uh, the, the, creating a better relationship between the civilian and military worlds and that that was an important intersection and over a period of years i think it took you know maybe four years fred warmed to it and then ultimately made you know of one of the largest gifts uh to that campaign uh to name to name the what is now the malik west point visitor center and um it was just it was such a beautiful thing to watch happen and he it was the right thing for Fred to do. And it was just, it turned out to be a perfect way for him to express again, because he had been this person that was kind of bringing in people from outside of West Point that the visitor center was named for him was just, um, it couldn't have been more appropriate, but it took him a while. And just being part of that journey with him was, uh, you know, very memorable. And again, just such a privilege to work with him. So. Very cool story and, and such a specific example. When you think about the general changes that you've seen during your tenure at West Point, what is a little bit of the before and present? Uh, and then where do you want things to go in the coming three, five years? What are you all excited about? Okay. Well, when, when I first got to West Point, um, I think they were bringing in something like $28 um, million a year. And um Last year we brought in close to 80 million. So it's 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 been transformed just in terms of a culture of philanthropy, um, and the the different um, the the difference. And it does take time. I've been here now 14 years, but to raise people's sights, to get them vested in this margin of excellence concept, and the thing about West Point is that really fundraising didn't start here in earnest until really the very late 90s. So we we were definitely still in our, I would say, you know, early adolescence when I got here and now have, have uh, matured um, to a point where, again, you know, the, the dollars speak for themselves. Um, we also have had massive success while the rest of the industry has seen a decline in alumni participation. We have almost year over year seen an increase. So I think, again, maybe um, I think uh, it might even be in the same neighborhood, like 29% alumni participation when I got here. And it's now um, closer to 37. And again, just the fact that we were able to do that by just conti continuing to execute on best practices, as you say, in a very 
rich environment with people who are very connected to the institution, but who just were not accustomed to thinking of philanthropy as a way of sustaining it. So what do you think is the most important factor in somebody going from maybe not an active no, but just a passive non-participation to yes? Like, what is it that you have done clearly thousands of times to get people off the sidelines into that culture of philanthropy? A lot of education, a lot of education. And also, I would say we have we have done a, re- a really great job. My colleague, um, Terrence Sinkfield, is the current head of alumni support. But we've really approached our alumni relations program as kind of the continuum. And this is something that I, you know, I really believed in is that you've got to make sure that this institution is still meaningful to grads, not just in terms of giving back philanthropically, but are you actually traveling with the alumni through moments that matter through their lifetime? And we, we do that. So we've done, we've done uh, human-centered design studies. Again, we've worked with our alums to figure out when we need to be there as an alumni association so that not, you know, it's not just the wonderful re- recollection of what might have happened at West Point to trans somebody, transform somebody's life as Fred feels and many, Fred Malik felt and many graduates do. But um, it's also that the alumni association is really providing some value to to the alums beyond just hosting for reunions. So, you know, are we helping them with career transitions when they're leaving the military? Are we helping them when their spouses die? Are we helping them when they are moving to a new community network with with other alumni? Um, Are we uh, ensuring that they are well informed about what's happening at the academy? and, and continuing to build that association and real connectivity in a meaningful way. So, and, and, and pertinent to them as, as they move through their lives. Um, we have a program now, and these, these are things that have come online since, since I joined, but something called gripping hands. So if people are experiencing financial difficulty that we have, we've raised money to be able to help people in need, you know, during natural disasters in various parts of the country. Um, so those sort, those sorts of that, that sort of actually truly caring about the community and and ensuring that people feel that it's not just about the money, that it's about the community, that it's about being part of the West Point family and this whole notion of gripping hands with the long gray line. You know, that is really, really important thing through generations. And again, promoting that and, and making and, and making that manifest. I love it. Thank you for sharing. Congratulations on the momentum approaching a, a billion dollars raised since you've joined. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. And we're, we are in a new campaign. It's a, a big campaign for West Point. It's 600 million and uh, it's called West Point Ready. And we're about uh, two and a half years in, I guess now, and we're about 50% of the way there. So we're feeling pretty good about that. Um, but you know, some we've got some work to do to to get to the to sprint to the finish, and and uh, that's still a number of years off. So, <laughs> well, tell me about that. Tell me about where you are. I know we're we're sort of at time now. Thank yeah. you for for carving uh, out a little extra time here. But what um, 
yeah, what is the state of, of the team today? Are you hiring at all? If folks want to learn more, how can they stay in touch with you? And oh, that's that's fantastic. We do we do have openings. Um, the team has grown significantly. I would say, you know, to anybody that's been a professional fundraiser, if you came into our organization, you'd recognize it. Um, we're a team of about sixty-seven people. It's a comprehensive development operation that includes actually all the athletic fundraisers as well. So it's it's really uh, a very collaborative team. Um, that is definitely a hallmark of what I attempt to do anyway as a as a leader of um, development teams. Um, I'm really committed to developing people and to seeing them. Uh, grow and flourish and giving them a lot of autonomy um, with with uh, some guidance and, you know, ongoing dialogue. But I love to see people be successful at what they do. And, um, you know, definitely if people are interested in in doing professional fundraising at an institution with a very meaningful mission in a beautiful part of the world, please look at us. You know, because it's it's not, uh, you know, what people think um, when they think about a service academy kind of initially. It is, I think, very recognizable. And just going back to one of the things that you talked about earlier, Brent, I, Kenyon College, um, where I graduated from, uh, one of the questions that you asked me before this interview is, you know, who do you look at uh, for good fundraising? And I always look at Kenyon. Um, where again, I feel this again, such a, such an affinity for that place. And I just want to give you a shout out because I understand that you work with Kenny and I didn't know that until now, but um, I just think their campaigns again around touching people's hearts and making sure that they're, you're bringing back the, the, the things that really um, were special about, about the institution. I, I think you all are, are doing a great job. So I, I just want to, um, thank you. And you've worked with our team a little as well. And uh, I want to thank you for the for insights sure. that you've brought too. So um, do you know Colleen Garland at Kenyon by any chance? We've kind of circled each other, but we haven't had um, a meaningful conversation. I should, I should reach well, out. I'm, I'm saying it here publicly to all of our listeners that I will uh, certainly shoot her a note and share your positive sentiments and hope that I can connect you all for a, a direct conversation, given all the shared interests, yeah. experiences, affinities. And uh, thank you so much, Kristen, for sharing more about um, your journey. And it's just, uh, it's it's so fun to hear the paths and the twists and turns and you know, taking us over to Spain and back uh, was was fun. And, and I wish you all continued success as you advance that uh, incredible uh, institution and mission. Uh, and, and we're grateful to be um, on that journey with you. And so uh, I would encourage everybody, reach out to Kristen. She's on LinkedIn, find her, uh, let her know that you heard her on the podcast. And we look forward to being in touch. Kristen, any closing thoughts? No, just thank you. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. A lot of fun. All right, appreciate it. Well, with that, everybody, I'm going to close today's episode with Kristen Sorensen, who serves as Vice President of Development at the West Point Association of Graduates. Thank you, Brent. 